Well, good evening. Tonight I wanted to begin a little bit differently than I many times do. I'd like to begin by taking a short quiz. It's a quiz that really only has one main question, although the question could be asked in different ways. The question is this, how does a person get right with God? How do people get right with God? Now, other ways in which this question could be asked would be, what does a person need to do in order to go to heaven? Or how does someone become a child of God? Or how does someone become a Christian? Now, the answer to all of those questions is the same, but I'd like to give you some choices. So this is a multiple choice, and I think you'll be surprised, perhaps, some of you anyway, my answer. So here are some of the choices. Again, the question is, how do we get right with God? How do we become a Christian? How do we know we're going to heaven? A, committing to follow Jesus. B, asking Jesus into your heart. C, repenting of all your sins. D, obeying God. E, getting baptized. F, all of the above. G, none of the above. Now, if you're taking notes, I encourage you to write down a letter, or maybe you think it's a combination, like it's A and C or whatever. But which one do you think it is? How do we begin a relationship with God? Is it about a commitment we make to follow Jesus? Is it about inviting Jesus into our heart or our lives? Is it that we repent of our sins? Obeying God, is obedience the key? Is it about getting baptized? Is it all of the above? Is it none of the above? Now, tonight I want to look at a story that I believe answers the question and illustrates the question. It's found in Acts chapter 16. And let me set the context for the story. Paul and another leader named Silas and some other friends were in the city of Philippi, which is located near modern Greece or East Macedonia. And there are a few others with them. It appears that uh, Timothy, for example, was with them, who was uh, Paul or Saul's son in the faith. And there was probably Dr. Luke was with them. There, there may have been other people, but they found themselves in the city of Philippi, and Paul and Silas began to preach. And they specifically were preaching the gospel. The message that God has sent his son to come into this world to die in our place and for our sin. And that he rose again from the dead so that if we put our trust in him, we'll receive the gift of eternal life. And, and that was the basic message that they were preaching. And while they were doing that, a slave girl, as she's described, who had a demon in her, begin to shout after them. Now, I recognize that some of us maybe struggle with this idea that a person could have a, a spiritual being inside of them, but in the Old and New Testaments, we read that Satan does exist, and, and there are angelic beings that are fallen ones. And according to the book of Acts, here this woman under the possession or filled with this demon, was able to foretell the future. She was a fortune teller. And she began to follow Paul and Silas around, and this was what she said. 
These men are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. They're slaves of the Most High God. That was her message. These men who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation are slaves of the Most High God. Now, what's interesting to me is that what she said was absolutely true. The message was correct. They were indeed working for the Lord God, and their message was a message of salvation or deliverance from sin, which is what the word salvation means when used in a spiritual sense in the New Testament. And so you imagine this scene that Paul and Silas are preaching, and then you got this woman, and she's shouting and following them around. These are servants of the Most High God. They're preaching the way of salvation. Paul put up with this for some time, several days. And then it says in Acts 16 that in his spirit he became aggravated. And he turned around and he spoke to the woman or the demon specifically. And he said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out from her. Now, I think part of the reason he did this was that she was distracting from the message, but there might have been another reason. A scholar by the name of Toussaint explains, though her statements were true, the gospel of Christ would be damaged by an association with a demon-possessed slave girl. In either case, the demon came out, and I know it's kind of an unusual story, but at that moment, her ability to do foretelling the future was gone. And her masters became very, very angry because they realized that they're not going to be making money off of her anymore. And they grabbed Paul and Silas. They dragged them into the marketplace and they brought them before the courts. And that's where we pick up the story in Acts 16, beginning in verse 20, where we read, bringing them before the chief magistrates, they said, these men are seriously disturbing our city. They are Jews and are promoting customs that are not legal for us as Romans to adopt or practice. That was the accusation against Paul and Silas. Now, everything about it is really wrong. For example, the issue was not that they were Jewish. I believe that the people making this accusation, though, were aware that this would stir up the crowd because the emperor, Octavian, had recently expelled all Jews from Rome. And so people were looking down on the Jewish people, and so in this accusation, they say these men are these Jewish people, and they're introducing things that are contrary to our laws, which also wasn't true. But the way they worded it stirred up the crowd. We continue the story in verse 22. Then the mob joined in the attack against them, and the chief magistrates stripped off their clothes and ordered them to be beaten with rods. After they had inflicted many blows on them, they threw them in jail, ordering the jailer to keep them securely guarded. Receiving such an order, he put them into the inner prison and secured their feet in stocks. Now, I don't know that we can appreciate in our culture how difficult this situation was for Paul and Silas. By the way, we don't know why they didn't arrest Timothy or Dr. Luke or some of the others. It's perhaps only because these two were doing the preaching. In either case, the conditions in which they found themselves were horrible. The cell in which they found themselves in was horrible. 
scholar by the name of John Newman describes it this way. It had no window or outlet except this door, which when closed, absolutely shut out light and air. It was a place of utter darkness, heat, and stench. The stalks were an instrument of torture having five holes, four for the wrists and ankles, and one for the neck. Now, I don't know how you would respond if this happened to you. You were arrested, you were beaten with rods, thrown into a room that had no light, no air conditioning, a stinky place, and then you had your legs and your hands in stalks plus your neck. So you can imagine them bent over like this. Hurts my back just thinking about it. Their response, though, was remarkable. In verse 26, we read... I'm sorry, in verse 25 we read, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. Their response was to sing. It was a joyful response. Now, why are they singing? Well, I think part of the reason is that they had the privilege of suffering for Christ. This is something that maybe most or maybe none of us have ever really experienced fully that if we suffer for Christ, it's a cause of joy. In fact, Jesus said that blessed are those who persecuted for my name's sake. Great is your reward in heaven. I think they viewed it as a privilege to suffer just a little bit for the one who suffered for them. And I think that's part of it. And I think part of it too is that they just had, they were just filled up with the spirit of God. I believe God used their singing though with the rest of the story, as we'll see in a minute. I've always thought, by the way, when I read this, that it suggests that Paul and Silas were half-decent singers because it says that the prisoners were listening to them. I suspect if they sounded like cats or if their singing was horrible, the other prisoners would have shouted something like, be quiet, we're suffering enough. But it indicates everyone was listening to them, and it's midnight, and then something happens. Continuing in verse 26, suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the jail were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains came loose. When the jailer woke up and saw the doors of the prison open, he drew his sword and was going to kill himself since he thought the prisoners had escaped. Now this might seem unusual in our culture, but in Bible times... If you were guarding someone and the person you were guarding escaped, it was your life for theirs. And probably would include torture before death. And this guy thought, I'm not going to subject myself to torture and death. He decided to take his own life because he just assumed that everyone had fled. But they hadn't. We read in verse 28, but Saul called out in a loud voice, don't harm yourself because all of us are here. Then the jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he escorted them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now I find that interesting for a lot of reasons, but it is the question we're asking tonight. What must I do to be saved? Now, when the word saved appears in the Bible, I know it's one of these religious terms, and I don't know what image even comes to your mind, but the word saved in the Bible just means delivered. 
In fact, you have to read the context to decide what kind of saving we're talking about. You could be saved from the storm. You could be saved from a battle. You could be saved from sickness. It just means to be delivered. But in this case, the guy is asking the question, how can I be delivered from the penalty of my sin? That's what he was thinking about that moment. Now, why was he, why was he thinking that at that moment? Well, I think there could have been a number of reasons. It's possible that he had been listening to them as they were singing, and, and perhaps he was won over by their joy because he had undoubtedly had a lot of prisoners in the prison before. None of them had sung. It never happened. I don't believe anyway. This is one of the things that sets Christians apart many times is our joy. That's why Paul said we need to rejoice always. People are watching us. What greater demonstration of our faith than when we're able to have joy despite our circumstances. And, and that may, may have been part of it. I think also it's possible that he was thinking of the message of that, that slave girl. Remember what her message was. These are servants of the Most High God and they've come to preach salvation. See, that's how he's using the word. What must I do to be saved? Or I would suggest that the earthquake itself probably just shook him to his core. I don't know if you've ever been in an earthquake before. I experienced one once in Columbus, Ohio. And it kind of freaked me out. This says it was such a strong earthquake that the doors came open, the, the stocks flipped open. You know, it says everyone was kind of set free. It was a serious earthquake, and I believe that he concluded these guys are indeed servants of the Most High God. That's the title that was given to God, the Most Powerful God. But he asked the question, there's no greater question anyone could ever ask. What must I do to be saved? The answer Paul gives is noteworthy for its simplicity. In verse 31, it says, So they said, Paul and Silas said, Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. That's it. That's, that's the answer. How do you get right with God? How do you become a Christian? How do you become a child of God? How do you have your sins forgiven? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put your trust in the Lord Jesus. This reference of Lord, by the way, I think is a reference to his deity. In other words, it's putting your faith in Jesus because of who he is and what he came to do. He's the son of God and God the son, and he's the savior of the world. So believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household, anyone else. Most likely, by the way, the jailer's home was right above the prison. And that's why he rushed down to check things out. And he assumed when he saw the door open that everyone had fled and they hadn't. But let's continue the story. Verse 32, then they spoke the message of the Lord to him along with everyone in his house. He took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. Right away, he and all his family were baptized. He brought them into his house, set a meal before them, and rejoiced because 
He had believed God with his entire household. And so he was brought up into the guy's house, and Paul explained the message. He explained the gospel. Specifically, we know what the message was, as we'll see in a minute, but the message was, again, that God sent his son to be the savior of the world. He died and was buried, but he conquered death when he rose again from the dead, and and he's the savior of the world, and we need to put our trust in him. And they believed. Now it says he immediately baptized them all. And some people have concluded, well, see, baptism is essential for salvation. I'm going to address that in a minute. It is not the case. But in the New Testament, we find all the time, if someone believed, they quickly identified publicly with Christ through the water of baptism. And that's what happened with this family. But it's not a requirement for salvation. Now, I started by asking this question about how we get right with God, and I gave you some choices. And in a moment, I want to go through each of those very briefly and explain. But the bottom line is this. The main takeaway this evening is this, that it's not about what we do for God. It's about what he did for us. This is what we have to understand about the whole thing about the gospel message, the good news. It is not about anything we do for God. It is everything to do with what he did for us, and all we do is receive it as a gift. That's our only response is to receive it as a gift. And the requirement is faith alone. I understand in the New Testament there are about 125, maybe the whole Bible, 125 references, Bible references, verses that explain how to get right with God, but 125 of them. 120 of them-ish say there's one requirement only, faith, trust, belief, that's it. Five of the others look like they might include something else like baptism, but I would suggest those five are being misunderstood. See, baptism was an important thing it's a step of obedience, but it's not a condition because we don't get right with God by anything we do for him. It has everything to do with what he did for us. Now, I want to look at some verses that demonstrate that. Most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16. says, for God loved the world in this way. Some of your versions say, for God so loved the world but the word so there means actually in this way. In other words, God loved the world so, colon. He loved the world in this way. He proved his love in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life, period. I don't see anything else. Read the next verse. Read the next verses. I don't read anything about baptism. I don't read anything about obedience. I don't read anything about church attendance. Whoever believes in him, if you only had one verse in all the Bible, it's the only verse you ever saw in your life. If you claimed it, this verse, you would have eternal life. That's all you would need. Now, oftentimes, I think we have trouble getting it. I've gone down to Honduras many times before, and I remember one year in particular, we were doing a medical clinic in the city of La Ceiba, 
And our doctors and nurses that we had brought down would examine the patients. And then after they had seen the doctor or the nurse, they were sent out to a building where I was. And there were a couple of other people out there with me. And our goal was to share the gospel with them. And so I began with each one of them. I would say, we really care about people's physical health. We care about their physical condition, but we also care about their spiritual health. And then I'd ask the question, do you know what you need to do in order to have a relationship with God, in order to know for sure you're going to heaven? And, and most people would say something like, I hope so. And then I'd ask every one of them, do you know John 3.16? And one after another would say no. And then I'd begin to quote it. It's the only verse I knew in Spanish, and I would quote it in Spanish. Most of what I did was through an interpreter, but when I got to the verse, I quoted it in Spanish. And as I would begin quoting John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son, whoever believes in him will not perish will not suffer eternal ruin, but instead will have eternal life. As I'd begin to quote it, each person would suddenly, their eyes would get big and they'd finish it with me. I realized they knew it. Almost everyone I talked to knew John 3.16. And then I'd follow it up with this question. Based on this verse, how do you get right with God? I was astounded by the answers. This one guy... I had to repeat the verse about 10 times. And I'm not exaggerating. After we quoted the verse, I said, now based on this verse, how do you get eternal life? And he said, you need to be a good person. And I said, well, let's read the verse again. God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Based on this verse, how do you get right with God? He said, you need to go to church. I said, let's look at it again. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, whoever believes in him. What is it? Oh, you have to be kind to people. You know, it was just on and on. It's like, I, I couldn't believe it. Let's look at the verse. What does it say? He had heard all these answers, and about the 10th time, his eyes got big, and he just said, I can't believe it. I just need to believe in him. And I said, yes, that's it. And he said, how is it that I've reached my mid-40s and I'm just now understanding this? Now, it entered in my mind the thought, well, it's because you're not listening. <laughs> his eyes were opened. He had just been spitting out answers he had heard in church his whole life, things that everyone had been saying. He'd never stopped to look at what God said about it. It's really simple. It's about what he did for us. God so loved the world, he gave his only son. And our part is just to believe. Roman, or John 1.12, the next one. But to all who did receive him, Jesus, God gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. It's talking about when Jesus came to Israel. It said many rejected him, but to all who did receive him, Jesus... God gave the right, the privilege, or the power to be children of God to those who believe in his name. Now, this verse looks like there are two requirements. You have to receive him, and you have to believe in him. But in the original Greek language in which this is written, those two phrases mean the same thing. In other words, it should be put this way, but to all who did receive him, 
Namely, those who believed in his name, God gave us the right to become children of God. You see, you receive Jesus by faith. It's about faith. You believe in him. You welcome him by faith to become your savior. The condition is exactly the same. Another familiar reference, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, where Paul wrote, for you are saved by grace through faith. Saved means to deliver, be delivered from the penalty of your sin. By grace, grace means God's kindness toward you, undeserved kindness, unmerited, unearned kindness of God. For you have been delivered from the penalty of your sin by the grace and kindness of God, and it is how? It's through faith. That's how you get it. And this is not from yourselves. It's God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. It's not about something we earn. It's not something we get by being good people. It's, if we could get to heaven by our good deeds or good works, this verse indicates we'd be proud about it. Like, hey, I got into heaven because I'm this and that, and then someone else up there, well, I got into heaven because I'm this and that. We would boast about it. There's no room for boasting. If we're trusting in our good works, none of us will make it. The thing we bring to our God is our sinfulness. It's his grace, his kindness, for by grace we're saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, it's a gift. Something you can only receive by faith. And so it's not about us. It's not about what we do for God. It's what he did for us. Paul clarified this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. He said, now, brothers, I want to clarify for you the gospel I proclaim to you. So that should catch our attention. We're talking tonight about the gospel, the good news that we need to believe in order to have eternal life. So Paul says here, I want to clarify what it is. The gospel I proclaim to you, you received it. And have taken your stand on it. You are also saved by it. That's our subject. If you hold the message I proclaim to you unless you believed for no purpose. In other words, if, unless you just heard but didn't really believe it. As long as you believed it and grabbed a hold of it, as long as you're standing firm on this message, you're saved by it. Now what is the message? Verse 3, for I passed on to you as most important, what I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and then it goes on to say, and he appeared to a bunch of people. That's it. What is the gospel? What is the good news? It's all about what he did for us. It's not what you do for him. Here's the good news. Here's the gospel by which you're saved. God sent his son into the world to die in our place and for our sins. And he was buried, but death couldn't hold its grip upon him. He rose again from the dead, defeating sin and death. The only requirement is faith. And this has been the case from Genesis all the way to Revelation. There's one requirement by which anybody has ever gotten right with God. It's always been by faith. You say, how do I know that? Well, Paul was asking the question in the book of Romans, how did Abraham get right with God? He raised that question. It's found in Romans 4, 2, and 3. He said, if Abraham was justified by works, in other words, declared righteous by God, if it was by works or by good deeds, 
He would have something to brag about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Well, it says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. Paul's making the point that even Abraham, that's how he got right with God. God made a promise to him concerning a son. And he believed God concerning that son. And that's how we get right with God today. We believe God concerning his son, Jesus, who was sent on our behalf to pay the price for our sin. And throughout the pages of the Bible, this is it. I think of the guy that was hanging next to Jesus, the thief. Remember, Jesus was in the middle and there were, there were some criminals on either side. And earlier in the day, as they were hanging there, both of the criminals were, were mocking Jesus. But at a certain point, one of them just, he kind of woke up. He thought in his mind, I'm dying here because of what I did wrong but he did nothing wrong. He concluded that. And then he looked over at Jesus and he asked this question, and I want you to consider the faith behind the question. He said, Jesus, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? I don't know how he understood it. He knew the guy hanging next to him was the prophet or the Messiah from the Old Testament, the one whose coming was prophesied. He knew that he was going to have a kingdom. Even though he was suffering the same fate, he realized, you're different. He even said to the other thief, we're here because of our sins, but he's done nothing wrong. Will you, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? That was the simplicity of the question. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. There's no need for baptism, no opportunity even. Some people say, well, if a person can't get baptized, then they'll go to heaven if they're not. No, baptism's either required or it's not. My thesis is it's not about anything we do for God. It's everything to do with what he did for us. The only response is to put our trust in him. Paul put it this way in Romans 10, 9. He says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, it's a reference to his deity. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Once again, if this is all you had, this is it. You recognize who he is, and you recognize what he came to do. He died and was buried and raised from the dead. This encompasses the whole story. If you confess with your mouth, you are Jesus, the Son of God, and God the Son, and you believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. That's it. It's as simple as that. So let's look at the choices I gave you earlier through the lens of what we've talked about, through the lens of it's not what we do for God, it's what he did for us. And that our part is just to believe. How do we get right with God? A, making a commitment to follow Jesus. Is that what it is, committing to follow Jesus? No. Emphasis is in the wrong place. And by the way, we're not very good about our commitments you make a commitment one day, I'll follow you, I'll do whatever you say, and then the next day you say, well, I don't want to do that. We're not good about our commitments. If, if we get right with God on the basis of some commitment we make, we're in trouble. No, it's not about a commitment you make. Did any of the verses we talk about, I read here, have anything to do with a commitment? No. Is it about asking Jesus into your heart? A lot of children are led to faith in Christ with this one here. 
It's not anywhere in the Bible, at least in terms of an invitation to receive Christ. This idea comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 3 and verse 20, which was addressed to Christians. It was telling Christians, invite Jesus into your, into your meetings and into your life. But we don't, we don't get to heaven by inviting Jesus into our heart. I don't even know exactly what that means. How do we get to heaven? By trusting Jesus, by believing in him, by putting our faith in him. Is it about repenting of all your sins? Well, no, again, the emphasis is in the wrong place. We, we can't even repent of all of our sins. You know what the problem with this one is? It conveys the idea that before you can become a Christian or before you can know for sure you're going to heaven, you got to get your act together first. got to fix myself first. got to repent of everything I've done wrong. No, you come just as you are. Remember the Billy Graham Crusades? They always ended with just as I am. With only a plea, your blood would count for me. I'm not wording it correctly. It's not about repentance. Now, repentance is there anytime someone becomes a Christian. It is present. The word just means to change your mind. A person will not become a Christian unless they see themselves differently in terms of their need for a Savior, and they see Jesus for who he is. There's a change of mind that does take place, but we don't repent and then believe. No, we just believe. We just trust. And we get to heaven by obeying God. Same thing. How obedient do you have to be? A lot of these are like this. You know, sometimes when I'm talking with someone and they say, well, you, you, you get to heaven by being good, I say, well, just how good do you have to be? Oh, I don't know. I just hope good enough. You'll never know if it's based on your goodness, your obedience, your commitment. It's not about us. It's not about what we do. Is it about getting baptized? No. Well, baptism is closely associated with the gospel again. It is a step of obedience, but it's not... It's not a requirement for getting into heaven. That's something we do as a sign of our faith, but it's not part of the formula. It's faith alone. And so the correct answer was, gee, none of the above. Because it's not something we can earn. It's not something we work for. Now, if you're a Christian here tonight, and you've, we've, as we talked about this, I want to encourage you in terms of an application that if you're talking with other people about your faith, use the terminology that's found in the New Testament to describe what you're to do. What is the terminology? Whoever believes in him. Abraham believed God. You know, for by grace you're safe through faith. Belief, faith, trust. Trust is a good one, by the way, because trust implies a confidence in that person. If you ask the average person, do you believe in Jesus, they'd say, yes, everyone like, believes in Jesus, but have you ever trusted him with your eternal destiny? To me, trust is the best word. But I want to close tonight, as I did last week, again with a prayer where you could invite Jesus Christ to be your Savior. I want to mention right away, it's not the prayer that saves you. It's not if you say this prayer or you go forward or whatever that you are saved, it's the faith behind it. But the prayer includes the elements that we're talking about. A recognition of your need and a recognition of Jesus as the answer. So I'd like us to bow our heads and I just invite you to pray this prayer to God. Romans 10, 13, we read, whoever will call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whoever just calls out on the name of the Lord. 
But here's the prayer. You can even use your own words. Something like, dear God, I know I've sinned. I blow it. And I need a savior. And I do believe, God, that you sent your son Jesus, the sinless one, to come into this world to die in my place and to pay the penalty for my sin. And that he was buried but raised again from the dead. The tomb is empty. And today, O oh Lord, I want to put my trust in him. Today, by faith, I receive him as my savior. Grant me the gift of eternal life, for today I claim the promise you made in John 3, where you said, whoever believes in him, I do put my trust in Jesus here and now. And I thank you in Jesus' name and because of what he did for me. Amen.